the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. It was called the Antiquities Act of 1906. It gave museums, anthropologists, and private collectors free reign to essentially loot the graves and villages of Native Americans. Almost a century later, a new federal law has been passed to give Native American communities the opportunity to reclaim those artifacts, and in some cases, even the remains of their ancestors. What the law does, what it does not do, and what further changes are needed, that's the topic of this edition of Challenge 2.0. So we're very grateful that we have two excellent guests that are going to be sharing their perspective and their wisdom on these very important issues, something that we know too little of in many cases. Uh, first, I'd like to introduce Shannon O'Loughlin, who is the Executive Director and Attorney for the Association on American Indian Affairs and is also a citizen of Choctaw Nation. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me and, and so happy that we'll be talking about issues of American Indians and repatriation today. And Jay Julius, if you've watched this program before, which of course we hope you have, uh, is not a stranger. Uh, We're uh, very pleased that Jay agreed to come back on our program. He is a former chair and council member of Lummi Nation here in Washington State and continues to serve as an influential leader, advisor, strategist, and also speaker. Jay, thanks so much for coming back on with us today. Jeff, thank you for having me again. Always a pleasure. I'd like to begin uh, by asking both of you to recollect the first time you visited a museum or other place and encountered what might be called an artifact of your culture, uh, your people on display, and what your reaction was when you saw that uh, separated from its true context. So I grew up in rural Oklahoma and uh, did not have uh, any opportunities to go to a museum. Uh, instead, uh, what I uh, experienced uh, growing up in Oklahoma were these, these horrible signs uh, that would lead tourists to uh, grave sites or graveyards or artifact digging. And sometimes those signs would lead you to the back of someone's house or garage where you could view a full uh, human remains and uh, those burial belongings that uh, went with those ancestors. So those were my first experiences and, mm -hmm. and how it made me feel is it, it um, as I looked around my family, it made me feel like we um, were special in a bad way. Mm -hmm. Why would our ancestors and our relatives of, of people that we we knew in the back of someone's garage behind glass, um, like some type of, um, almost like a, a circus, uh, you know, ex an experiment or um, some sort of weird oddity 
that mm -hmm. people would come to see. Uh, so it, it wasn't a great experience. Jay, how about your first experience with that that you recall? Jeff, this is a, a tough question. I'm, I'm, I live in uh, a county called Whatcom, which is uh, from, um, stems from our language and, and who we are as Lummi people. And uh, our ceded territory consists of not just mainland, but islands. And, and it's a tough question because, um, you know, this whole area, landscape, islands, and, and seascape is, is like a museum. We've lived here since time immemorial. And uh, compared to other reservations and homelands, ours is, you know, consists of the San Juan Islands and Whatcom County in the border of Canada. And, and then there was no border, obviously, at uh, pre-contact. That, that is something new. So as I reflected on this question, uh, we do have a museum here locally in Bellingham called the Whatcom Museum, but it started long before. It, it seems like, uh, as I reflect on this, it's a challenge my grandfather who served the Lummi Nation as a leader, elected leader for 30 plus years. And it was always uh, something he was facing, uh, fighting to protect, um, to exercise our inherent rights and sovereignty to preserve, protect uh, these um, sacred items in, in, um, in our ancestors. So it's almost a, not a trauma, but a, a something, something we experience almost every single year, whether it's mm -hmm. the uprooting of ancestors and development of a home or big projects in, in economic development from the mm -hmm. city and the feds. This trade in items of uh, spiritual and cultural significance has sometimes been described as legalized looting. Uh, what made that possible in the first place? I'm not sure if legalized is, is the right uh, mm -hmm. word. Um, I would uh, argue with that term today. Uh, uh, because uh, tribes have never given up their inherent sovereign right um, in jurisdiction over their cultural heritage. So mm -hmm. I would argue that um, uh, none of the looting was uh, legalized. Uh, but what gave rise to it is, is that, you know, we're, um, we're part of a, a country and uh, a government uh, that has worked to uh, assimilate and, and terminate Native Americans in order to possess land uh, and resources. And so in an effort to do that, uh, the federal government established policies that removed uh, Native people from their homelands uh, to reservations uh, and, and areas sometimes far away from their homelands uh, which opened up land, which of course had our ancestral remains and, and burial belongings. Also, um, our homes are, are places of, of, of religion and our sacred places were abandoned. And so our cultural items and, and other uh, sacred objects were also abandoned. Uh, once we were moved away from our homelands, uh, there were uh, regulations called uh, the civilization regulations that 
prevented us from practicing our cultures, our religion, our dance, our language, um, that demanded that we give up our children uh, to go to boarding schools and our, our, our children were prevented from speaking their language and practicing their life ways. Uh, so in order to get food and get shelter and to survive, um, oftentimes uh, native peoples had to give up those things. Um, uh, it was an effort of, of genocide uh, throughout the United States. And so those items that you see for sale at auction today, those items that you see behind glass at museums all over the world were taken um, by force and by violence and, and by um, uh, unilateral dispossession uh, mm -hmm. from indigenous peoples. Uh, through that whole colonization and, and, and genocide process. So I, I wouldn't call it uh, legalized mm -hmm. looting. I would call it actual theft and looting. Uh, and it continues today. It continues today. Items are still being looted from, from tribal spaces and, and lands. Um, uh, Jay mentioned um, development that continues and our graves of our ancestors are continually um, dug up and, and investigated, oftentimes without our free prior and informed consent. And, and I think we have to reflect back to, as Shannon stated, um, when this began, the perception or uh, the, the, the view of us, which is even taught today in 2021 or still exists in the Bill of Rights, mm -hmm. in, in these things that our, our youth are educated on and brought up with, um, viewing us as what? Um, less than human. Mm -hmm. or, or, um, and, and we know things have changed and times have changed. And, but um, unfortunately, that is still uh, a, a, not a subliminal message, but something that is instilled into our youth. And, and as they come up, it's become normalized. So we have to look back at um, contact, we have to look back at treaty times. We have to look back at policies that um, uh, allowed genocide or promoted genocide budgets from states and the government that allowed the genocide to take place or promoted it. And, and the lack of respect that has led to where we are today still um, towards our people, towards our ancestors and things that are um, culturally significant and sacred to us. Shannon, I might ask you now to share with us a little bit about your path, how you became involved with the uh, protection and repatriation of such objects of uh, cultural and spiritual significance. Right. Uh, thanks for that question. I, I don't often get to talk about how I started um, this journey. As you know, I'm an attorney and I uh, uh, went to law school at the University of Arizona College of Law in their Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy um, program. And it was uh, about four or five years out of law school uh, when I moved to New York State and started working with the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, mm -hmm. um, otherwise known as the Iroquois Confederacy, which is a confederacy of, of six nations. Uh, the Onondaga is a central fire. 
um, the Western door is the Seneca Nation and the Eastern door is the Mohawk Nation. And uh, the little brothers are Cayuga and Oneida. And a recent addition to those five nations were the six nations, the, um, the Tuscarora Nation from uh, a little bit south that was amalgamated into the, the Six Nations Confederacy. And um, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which spreads out up into Canada and, and um, uh, into uh, the, the Great Lakes region very deeply and, and even into the south of uh, past New York, uh, has a long history with working on repatriation matters uh, since the 1800s. And so when I came on uh, to work with them uh, and they presented me uh, with uh, uh, working with the Haudenosaunee Standing Committee on Burial Rules and Regulations, uh, the leadership told me that um, it was my job to help bring the ancestors home and that they would not be whole again that their nations could not be whole again until their ancestors were finally put to rest. Uh, so that was a lot on my shoulders as a young attorney. And so I really put um, all the effort I could into to thoroughly understanding the laws that applied to repatriation and graves protection and American Indian religious freedoms uh, to work the best for my client there with the Haudenosaunee and through that Mm -hmm. um, experience and, and working with them with many museums throughout the United States. Um, I was uh, happily appointed to the NAGPRA review committee by Secretary Sally Jewell under President Obama. Uh, President Obama appointed me to the Cultural Property Advisory Committee in the State Department, uh, which I was later fired by President Trump. Um, but I've had a lot of work and especially now with the Association on American Indian Affairs, uh, working with tribal partners uh, on repatriation uh, strategies and um, health and healing opportunities that come out of this work. As you undertook these efforts as a young attorney, were there any in particular that really were either emotionally difficult or had a particular emotional tug for you, either of satisfaction or dissatisfaction. Right. It's, and let me tell you, it's all um, triggering mm. of, of trauma. This work, um, uh, often a lot of work that, that advocates do in Indian country can be very triggering for trauma. And repatriation is, is one of those um, uh, there was a, a wampum belt that was for sale at Sotheby's. Uh, and we all, a uh, delegation of, of, of chiefs and, and tribal leaders from the Haudenosaunee and myself and others went to New York City to see the belt. And they brought the belt out and there was just this um, complete silence and respect. But what I saw from, from the, the, the tribal chief who actually picked up and, and held uh, the wampum belt is it was almost like a reuniting of people. Um, there was such a kinship with that sacred object and object of cultural patrimony that was owned, held uh, to be used for the Confederacy. There was such a relationship there mm -hmm. and, it, and that, that chief 
um, cried. And he talked to that belt like it was his child. And the entire room, in, including the Sotheby's um, people, were, uh, were, were moved. But uh, that's what we find. And we find that these items have been held in, in boxes, in shelves, in the dark, and um, uh, absolutely offending uh, that which we hold sacred. Jay, if you would share a little bit on how the arc of your life and your leadership intersected with this very issue that we're talking about. As we went into the process uh, to protect what under National Historic Preservation or the State Historic Preservation listed as a cemetery, the very first registered archaeological site in Whatcom County, 45WH1, um, uh, eligible for the National Register, one of uh, many, many sacred sites in this particular um, landscape where the coal, largest coal port in North America mm -hmm. was being proposed to be developed. Um, in 1999 or 2000, as a crow flies about 10 miles north, uh, there, there was another project that took place and uh, significant to us. But through that development process, my family was dug up, not one, not two, not three, but a massive amount. And it wasn't until 2015, like Shannon said, um, my family sitting in boxes on shelves in the dark um, and, and being who I am, traditionally family, where I come from, I had to take part in a process that no one should ever go through. And that's... Um, uh, putting your family members back to rest. Um, and uh, that took place in 2015. So through this fight, through this fight to protect uh, and preserve our way of life and protect our ancestors, all of this is compounded and it does become very emotional and you get very, you're very passionate, but at the same time, you uh, want to create empathy and understanding for where you are coming from and your people are coming from um, on the importance of protecting something like this. So creating that empathy was a challenge, but um, it was our chief, similar to Shannon's story, um, who sat with the colonel of the Army Corps on a log at this place, Huachiacan, this sacred place where this largest coal port in North America was being proposed. And the chief shared with him that this is home of the ancient ones. This is a special place. You can't just look at the physical things and the physical landscape of something like this. And it's a challenge for us to put this into English terms. Mm -hmm. And it's a challenge for us to, here at Lummi, I'll speak just for myself and my family and, and my experience in leadership, to have a conversation with a government that has separated themselves from being one with, mm -hmm. from uh, 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 understanding the sacredness um, and but but I found that when it comes to uh, other individuals in the outside outside of our community Lummi community indigenous community that <clears throat> if development was proposed over the top of a whole bunch of crosses and headstones and inadvertent discoveries were put in place if something was dug up in the process of this development on top of these um, crosses and headstones, but they would remove them, then it creates an uproar, then there's empathy and understanding. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to us, even today, right now, Jeff, 
um, there's still a lack of that empathy and, and understanding from uh, the pain that this creates in, in, in uh, our peoples, not just ours, but all throughout this country. It's happening in Indian country and has been. Um, so that, that's kind of where, for myself, um, one of the examples of where it started, but a lot has led up to it, including disturbances and home development. And um, it's, a, it's a constant thing. Shannon, I might ask you to respond to this first, but I think that we have to ask, do the issues extend beyond that of tribal sovereignty uh, to the larger scale issues of racism, white supremacy? Is that fair to say? Uh, that is uh, very fair to say. Um, uh, in fact, uh, tribal sovereignty uh, in our uh, legal juris jurisprudence has been expressed as being limited by uh, our inferior race. Uh, so uh, uh, the watershed cases in, in federal Indian law coming from the United States Supreme Court has cited our inferiority um, and our savage nature um, as rationale for removing our sovereign rights, for example, our ability to assert criminal jurisdiction over our lands. Uh, there have been several cases that have um, cited to our um, inferior court systems um, and, and uh, uh, jurisprudence uh, uh, whether it was traditional or established like a Western court system as being inferior and that we can't hold non-Indians um, to have to go through those foreign uh, mm. tribal court systems. So, so uh, uh, and the treatment of, of our ancestors and our objects as something that's, that's for scientific reflection only um, what that's done is that it's created uh, uh, academic and uh, museum institutions that actually uh, don't know how to educate about indigenous peoples mm -hmm. because they have such a limited um, scope of information about uh, the things that they have in their collections. What we found is when, when those institutions have um, become anti-racist, when they understand what they have in their collections and that their collections are the result of that racism um, and, and colonization. And they actually consult with tribes and work with them face to face and actually learn what they have in their collections and repatriation happens. Uh, then what is built there is a collaborative relationship where that tribal nation can actually help that institution educate the public, mm -hmm. um, which is what that institution was supposed to do in the first place, right? So now um, uh, the, the tribes and the institution can work together uh, to develop an appropriate uh, program uh, to share with the public about that tribal nation. So it's actually, uh, repatriation is healing for all sides. When it comes to sacred objects, when it comes to 
human remains and, and our beliefs, whether you're a Christian, Catholic, indigenous beliefs in all creation, you believe in the Mother Earth, uh, there are things we all hold sacred uh, to ourselves, and it's beyond uh, just the indigenous. Um, when we look at what is sacred or ask ourselves what is sacred, um, you know, what is that? And, and I think it falls under more than tribal sovereignty. It's a, it's a moral obligation. Mm -hmm. um, if, if we're willing to stand to protect something, as I stated earlier, that has crosses and headstones or other sacred objects to, your, to, to others, um, uh, what, um, we are not different. Uh, we, we are a, um, uh, a fascinating people. Um, I, I get that. The history is rich. The history is deep. And, and we've been here since time immemorial. But at the same time, um, it, it needs to be, the laws need to be uh, not designed to work around the, the, the tribal issues. And you know um, the 106 process, for example, is not designed to, it's designed to mitigate. It's designed to move, move things out of the way and and uh, so yeah, I, I do think it's it's beyond tribal sovereignty. We have a moral obligation. I think all of us, when we look to our beliefs, when we look to our face, when we look to what's sacred to us, um, yeah. These are important, though very hard things uh, for us to hear. To say nothing of how difficult they are to speak of and deal with. Uh, there are some glimmers, uh, perhaps some progress in righting some of these wrongs. And obviously we could not fit that in this episode, but we are going to be examining that in much greater detail in the next episode. So Shannon and Jay, I thank you so much for joining us and for agreeing to join us in the next episode. And for all of you, we hope you'll tune in again in next week's edition of Challenge 2.0. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharif. Cameras and audio by Richard McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Cuccio. Ian Olson is the production assistant.